Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation's Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, here at the top, I want to remind everyone about the Power Hour's email account. Now, this is where Travis steps in. Travis, this is your favorite part of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, I'm not sure it is my favorite part, but I'll do it. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. Well, let me say, it's. I'm the, happy to do it, Jack, every time. It's the part you're best at. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's a trick my wife uses. Oh, you're so good at this. You should do this oh, chore. You kill okay, it. Okay, yeah. You kill it. So reach out to us. We will absolutely respond. I mean, we just did a podcast devoted to your questions, and I'm happy to say that this podcast right here is responding to some feedback that we recently got. So write it down. Again, Travis, what is that email? The Power Hour at Heritage.org. All right. Now we have with us, as I mentioned, Rachel. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Jack? I'm all right. I'm all right. And Travis, you seem like you're in good spirits. I've reached ignition stage. <laughs> I'm ready to go. All right. Fully <laughs> caffeinated? Yeah. All right. Very good. A lot of caffeine. A lot of, very good. Me as well, I have to say. Now, there's something I want to bring up with you guys. We've been doing this for a few months now, and folks really seem to be enjoying it. We're getting really good feedback from listeners, and believe it or not, we keep getting really good guests. So it got me thinking, what is it that we're trying to do here? At the end of the day, we're trying to inform folks about energy and environmental issues and policy. Let's be honest, we have a perspective. We're skeptical of government's ability to advance those issues in ways that, that benefit most people. But to really be successful in that, we need to build an army of like-minded folks to advance our agenda forward. But our army needs a name. You know, like Taylor Swift has the Swifties, Ed Sheeran has the Sheerios, and Beyonce has the Beehive. So we need a name for our followers. I don't know what it is, but I wanted you to know that I've been thinking about it and wanted to see if you had any ideas off the top of your head. But most importantly, I wanna know if our listeners have any ideas. So think about it. Rachel and Travis, if you have any ideas, by all means, throw them out now. But this will be something that we discuss in the future, and I'm looking very forward to hearing what our listeners think, our army that we are raising to advance free markets and free enterprise and energy comes up with. I don't know. I got nothing right now. Power people? I was thinking uh, Jack's pack. Is that too Jack-centric? Travis's twits? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I like Jack's Power Pack. Jack's Power Pack. Well, I don't know what we'll call him, but we need a name because we're building an army here to bring free enterprise to energy markets. I do look forward to hearing what other people have to say, though, because I, I, I'm I, sure there's more creativity out there than, than we can scrounge up in this room. God, I hope so. We have, I a, really gu- hope we have so. a guest here today. We didn't ask <laughs> his opinion. Wait, he, she's not been introduced yet. Oh, they sorry, don't know sorry, that we sorry. have a guest. We'll get there. I'm hosting this operation. Give me a break. All right. I'll Jeez. Back. Jeez. All right. <laughs> Rachel again. Now that out of the way, (laughs) let's return to our regularly scheduled podcast. Now, as you might recall, we covered nuclear energy in a recent episode with our friend Paul Dickman from Argonne National Laboratory. 
Now, if you're new to our the Power Hour, I recommend you going back and checking that one out, especially if you want to know what's up with nuclear power. Paul is awesome, and he did an absolutely awesome job. Well, one of our listeners, Glenn, thank you, Glenn, for reaching out, reached out and said that he'd like to hear more about nuclear energy and safety. So what do we do when we get a request? Here, Rachel, what do we do when we get a request? We answer that request. Yes, we respond. And today, we're going to take another drink from the nuclear bucket, so to speak, and we're going to talk about some different aspects of nuclear energy. And one area where we will be diving deep is safety issues. Now, I know that each week I say something like we have the best person in the world to discuss whatever topic is at hand. And that's true. They always are, without question. And today, my friends, is no different. Maybe even more so. Rachel, get ready. This is the part you've been waiting for. I'm ready. That's because we have with us my old friend, my friend. I'm not saying he's old. I'm saying (laughs) he's been my friend for a long time. The CEO of the American Nuclear Society. Now, for those of you that don't know, the American Nuclear Society covers all aspects of the nuclear enterprise. Energy production, waste management, research, medicine, all of it. I mean, if you're talking about deep research on cutting-edge nuclear science, they do that. Or if you just want to learn how to communicate about nuclear energy issues to your local, local Rotary Club, they can help with that, too. And I know because I've attended countless, well, more like five or so, American Nuclear Society annual meetings. You cover all the bases, Craig. So Craig's not only done that, he's worked on Capitol Hill, and he's really been involved in just about every major nuclear policy issue that's come about over the past 20 or so years. So with that, Craig, welcome to the Power Hour. Good morning. Uh, Happy to, uh, I don't know, maybe be first of uh, Jack's Power Pack, right? (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Is that a vote for Power Pack then? Uh, You know, it's feeling good. I've tried it on for size. Feels good. All right. Well, we'll see what we'll see what the people have to say about that. Um, (laughs) I hope it's not Jack's Jack's Power Pack. (laughs) Oh, it's going to be. It's going to stick now. It's like it's like the names that you don't want. Those stick the hardest. Well, we'll get we'll give the people what they want. We're going to cover a bunch of ground today, but first I'd like to talk, Craig, a little bit about um, ANS. Like, what does ANS do? I mean, besides everything, um, but what does it do? So ANS is the Professional Society of the Nuclear Community or Nuclear Industry. So we're 10,000 members um, from all 50 states. We have, I think, 30 other countries. And there are nuclear engineers, nuclear technologists, anyone that is a a nuclear professional. So we have uh, 17 professional technical divisions, everything from thermal hydraulics to reactor physics to operations and power. Um, We put on a dozen meetings a year. We do policy engagement work, work with the media, helping them understand the basics of nuclear energy, making sure that they have the background to uh, report correctly on this, which, as you can imagine, sometimes is a challenge. Um, And so, uh, you know, again, we're not a nuclear industry organization. We're not a lobbying organization. We're a professional society, and we represent the, the men and women of the American nuclear community. I can say just a couple of things real quick. Um, it used to be 10,001 because I used to be a member and I've let my membership lap, uh, lapse. But I'm gonna, it's going to be 10,001 again very soon, I promise you. I know I've said that to you in the recent past, but I'm going to do that um, because it's such a good organization. I can say as someone whose job it is to know nuclear energy policy, when things happen like um, 
the Russians start bombing Ukrainian power plants or whatever the case might be, um, you are one of the first people, if not the first person I reach out to, to get really good information on what's going on so that I can then help. Um, so that can then inform the analysis that I provide in, in my job. And the, the information you all provide is always top notch and is critical to all of us who are in this world to doing our job. Well, thank you. Um, you know, we take pride in really providing unbiased information. It can be, it's not going to be the sexiest thing out there on the internet at whatever it's time. It's pretty it is. sexy. <laughs> Depends who you ask. Jack, Jack's really into it. Got to be honest. Well, you know, everybody has their own thing, right? <laughs> but uh, I think that um, you know, we really do try to provide unbiased technical information to both members of the public and media. And you know, you mentioned Zaporizhia and the the invasion. You know, it's something that we stood up two years ago, something called the Rapid Response Task Force. And the goal really was to be ready if something happens in nuclear to explain what's going on, to give the facts. And, and really, Zaporizhia and the, the, uh, the Russian occupation of the nuclear plant was really our first opportunity to, to bring that into operation. And so uh, the day that the plant was um, the day the plant was approached by the Russians, we actually knew it was coming. So we had some some you know information on the ground, and I'm of course we're still kind of in pandemic time. So I'm in my home office. I'm having you know dinner with my family. I have in my office I have the 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 webcam of the plant up. We have the radiation readings up. We've got Google Earth up so we can sort of have a spatial sense of what was going on. And I get a text from my, my um, one of our staff who said it's happening. And so I offer my dinner table over to my office, looked at my computer, and sure enough, you could see down in the distance there was a little column of vehicles coming up with the Russian troops taking cover behind it. And, and we watched it actually unfold in real time. And, um, and as, of course, as all of you know, there was, you know, immediately a fire turned out to be in an accessory structure. It was in a training building. But as you might expect, the media grabbed a hold of it quickly and it was fire in a nuclear plant. And so we were able to, to you know, look at the webcam, understood the perspective there, knew where the fire was, could pinpoint the fire. And then we were we were on with the networks trying to, you know, give them information that really started a year long process of you know, of us gathering information providing it to you know both media and the public about it and uh, you know we've learned a lot I mean nuclear plants are very robust structures and they were never meant to be in a war zone and shouldn't be in a war zone but uh, um, you know so far um, things uh, you know things have been managed safely and uh, and and we've not really seen a risk to the public so you know, it's it's uh, it's been an, it's been an interesting ride on that one, and it's interesting to kind of engage with the world about how uh, you know how people perceive nuclear and how you can help them perceive nuclear more objectively and rationally. Yeah, well, it's a tremendous service that you that you provide because um, the media almost always gets nuclear wrong, and I you know I think it's partially ignorance, it's partially agenda driven, it's partially trying to get clicks. And it, it doesn't take most people in the media, unfortunately, very many steps to get from commercial nuclear to nuclear bomb. And, you know, it reminds me of a, a recent and, – and, and this, this uh, 60 Minutes report was, uh, was about the, the Ukrainian um, 
uh, the, the Ukrainian issue. And they spent most of that time talking about nuclear weapons. And um, this, it's, it's part of what makes nuclear energy such a difficult um, nut to crack and one that we, need, we continue to, to grapple with from a policy standpoint. But we'll, we'll get more into that. Um, one last thing before we get into the, the policy issues is uh, I wanted to, to ask you, what, what, what's your role at mm-hmm. ANS? I mean, I know you're the CEO, but sort of what does, what does Craig do on a day-to-day basis? <laughs> well, Craig never seems to do the same thing on a day-to-day basis, but that's part of what makes the job fun. Um, so, you know, my role is to oversee the organization, uh, manage its operations, and also help with um, its external its relationships with external audiences, whether that's Congress or the administration or other NGOs in in, in Washington. You know, part of my job and, and a big part of what ANS does is communicate with its members and the public. So we have a uh, we have a monthly magazine, actually two magazines, three technical journals. Um, and uh, an online news service. So, um, you know, I don't get involved in editorial decisions, but it's 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 more a function of keeping that running, operating, and and in this sort of new media environment. Um, and we have twelve different, you know, a dozen meetings a year generally. So we have two national meetings. Our next meeting is coming up. It'll be um, in Indianapolis the second week of June, um, and. Uh, and that will be our, our big annual governance meeting. And then we have a winter meeting in Washington, D.C., and we'll have 10 topical meetings throughout the year um, where different, different groups within the nuclear community, if you're, if you're into materials or you're into fusion or you're into, uh, again, thermal hydraulics or reactor physics, whatever you're into, we've got a little conference for you where you can meet with your colleagues and, and, and have discussions, present papers, and, and advance the science. So, you know, it's, it's, um, I oversee all of it. We also have um, an elected leadership at ANS, so we're a democratic organization. Um, all of our, our division executive committees are elected by the membership. We have um, uh, an executive committee that, that consists of um, our incoming, current, and outgoing presidents. So we have a one-year rotating presidency between industry or utilities, national laboratories, universities, and nuclear suppliers. So it's kind of a, a, a conveyor belt, if you will, of leadership that comes through and is able to you know, participate in some of our larger decisions. And then we have a board of directors that are also elected. So, um, so you know, they really kind of help set the direction. Um, and I, I execute uh, on a day-to-day basis and also help the board mm-hmm. you know, find the path forward. Now, are people just people who are interested in nuclear energy able to get involved in ANS in some way? Like, how, how can our listeners, they just want to know more about nuclear, get more involved in, in nuclear? Is there, are there avenues for that? Well, uh, we, we, we accept everyone. And, and so just go to ans.org slash join. And, uh, we're even happy, me. Even you. <laughs> even you, Jack. Um, but I think we, you know, we, and we're seeing now more. What's interesting is we're seeing people from adjacent industries like the fossil industry people that might be electrical or mechanical engineers that, that you know, see the growth in interest, see the developments in nuclear, and, and you know, bring a skill that's relevant to the industry but want to understand how nuclear works. And so we're seeing a, sort of an influx of people joining the society that, that, um, you know, that are newcomers, really. And, we, and of course, we welcome them. 
Very good. Um, so I keep promising we're going to get into safety issues, and we are. But before we get into that, nuclear is enjoying right now a bit of a, what seems to be maybe towards a comeback. Um, I'm curious, sort of what are your thoughts on that? Are we at the precipice of a nuclear renaissance, for lack of a better description? Um, what are some of the challenges that, that you see nuclear facing? Sort of where is the industry right now? Yeah. The, the industry in terms of power production, sort of traditionally considered nuclear industry. Right. So so um, I wouldn't call it a nuclear renaissance. So we had a nuclear renaissance about 15 years ago. And, I would and say it, we had one about 60 years ago. Well, but they, we did. You know. That's correct. That's right. <laughs> I, I like to talk about it more as a nuclear enlightenment, okay. right? So we, we, we're, we're, what's happening now is people are beginning to kind of look more clear-eyed at, at our electrical grid. They're looking at, um, um, you know, how do we make our grid resilient and reliable in you know the face of external uh, pressures, and I also think that there is um, you know there is an arc toward decarbonization that more and more people are are paying attention to and thinking about how do you if you're going to have a deeply decarbonized grid, how do you make it work in a way that is reliable and at the same time um, allows. Um, allows us to provide the prosperity to people that they want. And, and you know, it, it, it's not going to work if it is done within an environment of, of constraint, right? I mean, yes, there are some people that want to, you know, want us all to live in yurts and live off of AA batteries and, and solar power, but it's not, you know, it, it's not going to work. And so um, I, I think that people are beginning to do the hard math and realize that there needs to be a, a, a sort of a solid core element to to um, a, a clean electricity grid, and, and nuclear really is the only, you know, option that's available and proven. Now, there's some differences, right? There are differences in the technology. Um, we're, we're, we're seeing new designs come to the fore that, that have um, – uh, you know, new aspects to it, right, in terms of, of longer refueling intervals or micro-reactors that can be used in, in remote operations. Um, we're seeing designs that are um, operated near atmospheric pressures so you don't have, you know, um, the, the same kind of engineering challenges of operating it, it safely. Um, so I think there's excitement about the new technology. I, I think there's a lot of road that still needs to be covered here. The, um, the theme for our annual meeting is failure is not an option. So there is this interest out there, but how do we capitalize on it? How do we, you know, how do we get to the goal line here? Because there's still some, some significant challenges in terms of um, fuel, obviously licensing, um, and developing the supply chain and the workforce necessary for a commercial scale-up of the technology, which I think is still on track for the, I'll call it the 2030 timeframe. Now, you mentioned, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, um, but you mentioned nuclear in response to uh, folks who want to deeply decarbonize the economy. I, I, I would... Um, I'm skeptical of that as a mm -hmm. reason to build nuclear, and I get concerned when folks who want nuclear to be successful um, hitch the nuclear wagon too closely to that. Because whether, without getting into the debate, mm -hmm. there is no question but that 
there's not a political consensus on that issue. And whenever you attach any business to a, a political thing that can whip one way and the other, that to me makes it um, – makes me worry that that business will be successful in the long term. And for me, someone who is skeptical of decarbonization, um, but not skeptical of nuclear, I think that nuclear is essential to this country, to the world's future. Um, What do you say to someone like me and probably a lot of our listeners who want nuclear to be successful? They're not worried about carbon. So does it have a future without the carbon concern? Right. Um, So... First of all, I think it's a reasonable comment. And and the way I, 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 I try to describe it is that there is an arc going in that direction, right? Now now we can argue whether that that is, you know, we can have that argument. We're not, you know, let's not get into it today, but but there is this this um, you know, there is this move toward it, right? That yes, governments are involved, but also industry and their their, you know, um, in their uh, ESG goals, like it, you know, it's happening, right? That's all I'm saying there. But I agree with you that, I mean, if you look at nuclear on its merits, right? Uh, so a technology that that um, you know emits no carbon, emits no SOx, NOx particulates, has a capacity factor today. The current fleet that some of those reactors are, are you know approaching 60 years old, are operating a 92% capacity. And, and so these plants run for 18 months. They go into, you know, shutdown in the shoulder seasons of spring and fall. Um, they, their maintenance outages and refueling looks like a Formula One pit stop in terms of, of, you know, just how tightly coordinated it is. And what you have is this group of men and women that have taken these facilities and and are running them at an optimal level to be economically competitive in 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 you know in electricity markets. And so I think that you know whenever you think of nuclear, there's always going to be a fear premium that nuclear pays. And I'm sure we'll get into that as, as part of the regulatory discussion. But if if we were if all of us had an objective understanding of the risks and benefits of all energy technologies then I think nuclear would win because it's so reliable it, it, you know, and it's so powerful, right? It can scale in a way that other sources can't. So I do believe it stands on its own merits, but we obviously operate within a, within a context, and that's one part of the context. Yeah, the, the whole carbon thing is certainly a way to broaden the base of support for nuclear, if nothing else. But in the process, I don't want – I just fear that it becomes too dependent on that, and if that piece falls away – you lose something. Yes. Um, so you, you 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 mentioned safety. So let's get into that. That's mm-hmm. really what we're here to talk about today. Um, let's start with the basic question: Is nuclear energy safe? Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, I think that you have to, you know, let's 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 dispel the notion that there is any form of energy that has no risk. So you know, but no risk doesn't mean safe, and. The one statistic I would give you, Jack, is that in the entire 60-year history of the operation of nuclear reactors, there has been no single member of the public that has been killed or injured by radiation. So, um, you know, I challenge any other energy source to 
show a safety statistic like that over their over their time, right? Now, you know, of course, in any industrial situation, things get dropped, things get broken, you know, people get injured. It's, you know, it's part of life. But, um, but, the, but the nuclear energy safety record in comparison to pretty much any other industry is superlative. So I'd say for anybody that has questions about, the, about safety, look at the record. Now, you know, I recognize that, and we all recognize that the way nuclear is perceived in the public is challenging, right? There's sort of this, this base level of fear. You know, I sort of, you know, compare it to great white shark attacks, okay? It's, it's not, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's an uncommon situation, but, it, you know, it, it's something that the public really fears. And that really for ANS and, you know, one of my jobs uh, is to help promote a better public understanding of the benefits and risks of the technology. And we're going to tell it to you straight. And, and you know, we're not going to sell you a line, but our goal is to have, you know, to improve people's understanding and technical understanding of the technology. Um, and you, you guys jump in whenever, whenever you want, please. Um, oh, yeah, Rachel. I do. I do have. So one of our listeners um, who – actually asked us this question was asking us about that angle specifically about nuclear's track record in terms of um, associated deaths or injuries um, with that industry and was kind of comparing it to saying well nuclear weapons haven't killed that many people either and we're saying that that argument kind of they just kind of wanted to see that argument spelled out a little bit more um, and just talking a bit more about um, that that comparison because I think, for instance, like I've seen the the Three Mile Island documentary, right. I've seen the Chernobyl HBO series, and and I think that there's a connection between the weaponization of nuclear and that safety um, issue, and then nuclear in terms of electricity generation and all of that. So. Can you just talk about that a little sure. bit more? So, so a couple things. I guess the first thing I'd say is, is you know, getting the point that you made and Jackie made too about the connection between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And and you know, if you look at if you look at public surveys, that connection really is most acute at folks that are sort of you know. There's a certain senior segment of, of, the, of U.S. demographics that still sort of carry that with them. It was probably a formative experience for them back in the 1970s. Maybe they went to an anti-nuclear rally because, you know, everybody was doing it. And, um, and so, you know, I think that, that that is going away with the younger generations, right? You haven't lived under the sort of Damocles that was sort of the atomic weapons, even though, you know, I mean, the world, you know, the world continues to change. But um, but I think that that the you know when you get into safety and we, when you talk about things like Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, um, you know it's important to recognize what our thought process is in that right. So the way I would describe Chernobyl is, you know, if if you saw the Hindenburg go down in a in a flaming wreck, would you be afraid of of air travel again? 
right? Because the Chernobyl reactor doesn't look anything like any reactor that's online in the United States today. All those reactors, have, you know, they, they, they had certain fundamental flaws. They were designed under a Soviet system. Um, and, um, you know, communism and technology don't really work well together. Um, but, you know, I think for, for it, it, you know, nuclear and radiation sort of tickle that part of our caveman brains where we can't smell it, we can't taste it, it could be anywhere. You know, we don't really understand how it, it affects us. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's all about oxidation, right? It's all about, it's the same thing that, you know, eating a, a well-done cheeseburger and, you know, like a bad diet and lack of exercise will do to you, right? And we all get radiation wherever we are. We're getting it in the room right now. The average member of the American public gets about 300 millirem a year from natural sources, cosmic radiation, soil, um, and then another 300 on average in medical procedures. Um, most of the regulations that we have today regulate down to a very small fraction of that number. Um, but yet, you know, again, part of this is helping people get over their fears to, to better understand the technology. Again, there, you know, there are risks to every technology, but, um, but there's not nearly as much risk to nuclear as most people perceive there is. And, you know, and the challenge is how do we, you know, help people along in, 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 in better understanding it. So I just wanted to echo that point because I thought it was a great one and I haven't heard it characterized that same way. The Hindenburg versus modern air travel. It's like, shouldn't we look at the track record of the Boeing series of airplane that we might actually be boarding as opposed to what we've done in the past? Um, you know, like the Wright Brothers plane wasn't especially safe either. Um, but we're beyond that. We're past that. Right. And so the, the right context is what are we using now? And that technology is incredibly safe. Um, <clears throat> the other point that we touched on, I, I imagine we can take a deep dive on this. Cause th this is a thing that, that really it's important for policymakers especially to understand this. But I, I think sort of the, the average person when they hear radiation, of course it's bad. Think about it in terms of you know, it's the dose that makes the poison. Uh, we don't usually treat sunlight as a, a terrible thing. Get it in moderate amounts. It's delightful. It can give you a tan, gives you vitamin D, and it's pre it's pretty much amazing thing. I think everybody likes sunlight. Nobody likes a sunburn. And the difference, the only difference, is the amount, is the total exposure over time. So th that's an important point too. Is like, well, we shouldn't hate radiation per se. We should we should avoid the parts that become harmful in terms of the dose and the exposure. So that's where I like to put things in terms of bananas because they are slightly radioactive. <laughs> right. And I like to put it in terms of how many bananas am I exposing myself to? And so I, I don't know if you have thoughts on sort of how to put things in context because it really yeah. is. I mean, we are surrounded by it. It's not scary. It sounds scary. Shouldn't be scary in application, though. So I'm, I'm curious yep. to hear your thoughts on, on bananas. So my personal favorite is the transatlantic flight or the cross-country flight because you, you know, every hour that you're at that altitude, you're, you're you know, you've lost the, the, you know, insulating factor of the atmosphere. You're getting more cosmic radiation. A transatlantic flight will get you maybe five millirem of exposure. 
um, the current drinking water standard for uh, for EPA is four millirem a year in your water, and that doesn't matter whether it's natural sources or not, right? So we get a lot more, and 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 what we realize is that um, we all know that high sort of prompt doses of radiation, there's sort of a linear effect, right? The more you get, you know, the more you have increased chances of of you know health issues, right? Whether it's, you know, whatever it might be. Um, beneath 10 rem a year, there's no epidemiological evidence that shows an increase in the incidence of cancer or any other kind of identifiable um, uh, impact of radiation on health, right? So, so you can't see it, you know, people that live out in Vail, Colorado are probably getting, are, you know, some of the highest levels of radiation because it's the combination of, of being at altitude and also living in soils that have uh, a fair amount of radioact naturally occurring radioactive material in them. Um, but, you know, the, the, so we can't see it, but then you've had this debate in the scientific community of the kind that you describe with with sunlight, how much is too much, and is there a threshold below and, which you can fully recover? You can be exposed to small amounts, and it's not harmful to your health. Right. I, I think that's the question of the if we know it's harmful in high amounts, there are a lot of people who sort of assume that it's harmful in very low amounts, and I I just don't think that's true. The only thing I would say about that is that we don't want to wait for the answer of the question because we already have the answer. Right, we know that below a certain threshold, the impacts are so small. I think the Health Physics Society says, not statistically different from zero. <laughs> okay, that's how they, you know, that's how they describe it. But um, um, we know that the, you know, but we know that there are impacts to socks, knocks, particulates, you know, effluent from fossil plants that. That um, that do cause premature deaths because of asthma. We can argue over how many, and you know there are, there's a you know there's a whole body of evidence there. But you know again, it's it's balancing the risks and the benefits. And in this particular situation, if you look at the the science, you know the benefits in general. I mean, clearly, I think outweigh the risks, right? I mean, we know that when the power goes out, people die. Okay, I mean, we know that from. Um, the, the Texas blackout a couple of years ago, um, you know, we are, as a society, are more and more reliant on electricity and power for our health and well-being. And when you take that away, bad things happen. And so, you know, I think part of the challenge here is, is properly structuring the benefits and the risks so that we understand how, you know, to maximize the cause of human flourishing, and and that's a difficult situation to do, you know. In in you know certainly within the current sort of political, social, and regulatory environment. But I would I would just end with I think things are improving there. I think one of the frustrating things for me, who has been looking at this issue for a long time, on the radiation issue is that we remain, our regulatory approach has not really been updated to meet our knowledge of, our growing knowledge of the risks associated with radiation. I think that's one of the, one of the areas where we can really improve from a regulatory standpoint to bring 
the risks associated with nuclear, whatever they are, in line with the regulatory burden associated with mm -hmm. nuclear. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And I think we're having a slow rolling conversation about that right now. I think that, that you know, we are seeing public opinion changing more favorably. We are seeing, um, you know, sort of really emerging but strong bipartisan consensus, right? That when people do the math and do the science, they, they you know, they, they see what the options are. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's, it's – you can't um, – I, I always go back to this line that, um, you know, Bill Magwood, former NRC commissioner, um, used in a meeting at a 50, you know, public meeting like 15 years ago. He sort of talked about um, – it was, it was within the context of handling nuclear material, but his point was – you know, it, dep it depends on what kind of future you're expecting. Are you expecting Star Trek? Are you expecting Planet of the Apes, right? And if you're, if you're, you know, if we're all still working towards Star Trek, that technological advancement is going to help support humanity in the future. You need power, and 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 nuclear really is going to have to be an element of both fission and fusion, an element of our of our future. Otherwise, if if you don't expect that. You know, if, if we expect standards of living to flatten out and go down, then, you know, we probably don't need it. Right. But, but I don't think that's what anybody wants. It's not what most of us want. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm personally in the Star Trek camp. Okay. I, I think we're going to have cool stuff. I hope things don't fall apart. But I guess one, one question about sort of the growing consensus of people are, are I think, wrapping their minds around the, the need for new nuclear, the need for more power globally, you know, we're only going to need more and more, especially if we want to run everything on electricity, which is another plan in the works. Jack and I are, and I, I assume Rachel's in the same camp. We, we don't think that's a, we don't think that's a great policy idea, but that is the direction that a lot of people are trending. And so the need for more power to satisfy those demands. I think that's where, I guess it's an optimistic point of view that we're going to continue to grow and grow and need more. The question that I have is there's still a partisan split, and I don't fully understand this. There are some Democrats who are coming around to the idea that in order to solve the problem that they're trying to solve, you do need a lot of nuclear energy. There's still, you know, polling shows a pretty wide gap. There's the, um, in the Republican side, it's in the 60-70% range of support. Uh, independents are somewhere in the middle. The Democrats are still somewhere in that 30-40% range, and it's, there's, a huge, there's a huge delta there. And, I, and I'm curious, how, how do you explain that? Yeah, well, so um, I would agree with you. I mean, you, can, it, you know, it depends on the polls and how you look at the crosstabs, but it, right? It's, but it's, it's there, there, right? It's definitely the, – the, the gap is there, but the gap is definitely narrowing. Okay. And, and what we've seen in the last five years is the biggest gains that nuclear has made in support has been on the Democratic side, in part because the Republican side was already was already there, right? Was already there on the technology. But um, but we're you know we are seeing it. I don't think that we will ever see, um, you know, you're never going to see consensus on total consensus on anything in this country. And there's always going to be that small group of people that that you know either have historically been really opposed, you know, opposed to nuclear from the beginning and it's, you know, it's identity protective cognition and you're not going to break through to them, right? Um, or 
there's been, you know, and, and as I think, you know, there's a still a strong anti-nuclear kind of informal shibboleth in the environmental community that, you know, is starting to get, I think, worked out now as the environmental community does math. Um, but yeah, it's still there. And I think that, that um, you know, there's also, a, um, you know, there's a, there's a gender gap on nuclear too that needs to be, you know, uh, needs to be understood and considered. But, uh, but the numbers are improving. And I think what, what's really interesting is, is, you know, I mean, one, one or two push questions and you can send the numbers going 30% in either direction or maybe even more, right? So again, I think, you know, it's, it's um, this is an open, ongoing discussion and, you know, we're seeing improvement, but, um, but yes, there is, there is still a gap. Craig, when I think about nuclear, well, I want to, I want to, I want to, show people or inform people how nuclear regulation is done. We often just talk about regulation as this thing, mm -hmm. um, but it's not just this thing. It's, it's a regime of laws and customs and responsibilities that have led nuclear to be as safe as it is. Mm -hmm. When I look at it broadly, there are two buckets. There's the, uh, the government's role in 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 um, ensuring, doing uh, its role in, uh, I don't like saying ensuring safety of nuclear power plants because I don't think government ensures anything. I think that it has a role, a defined role that's supposed to advance safety. But then there's this whole private sector role in advancing safety. Um, and interestingly, in nuclear, and it's not the only industry; it's the one I know the best. Though there's a private regulatory piece to it. Um, could you talk a little bit about like the different roles and responsibilities in ensuring uh, nuclear safety and how they layer in with each other? That the the safety record that we've ta been talking about is not just by accident. Like right. there's a culture and a history and a uh, a, a um, private sector regime, a government regime that have all worked together. That um, they have their inefficiencies, maybe in some aspects, certainly on the government side, but have led to this record of safety that we have today. Yeah. So, so um, maybe we can just do sort of the quick Cook's tour, right? So, you know, obviously central to all of this is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So it is a, a, a commission of five um, presidential appointed Senate confirmed uh, uh, commissioners, uh, of which three are in the president's party. Um, the NRC essentially oversees the licensing and regulation of nuclear reactors and the use of special nuclear material, right? So, you know, fissionable material like uranium and plutonium. Um, in addition to that, you have the Environmental Protection Agency that sets the public health and safety standards that NRC regulates to. Then you have what I'll call the nonproliferation regime, which is like the National Nuclear Security Administration and, you know, internationally the IAEA um, that, that set norms for the use of nuclear technology and the prevention of, of proliferation, right, whether that's through, you know, um, uh, materials or reactor operations. So I, you know, I think those are the the main three the main three government players, and then you have IMPO, the Institute for Nuclear Plant Operations. So this was something that was created after the Three Mile Island incident, um, where it is essentially industry supported 
to uh, help train and prepare people that work at nuclear plants so that um, our nuclear plants are more effectively managed and um, and we create what's you know in the in the nuclear business there's a lot of talk about safety culture right and and so and if you're ever talking to nuclear people you'll hear the safety culture come out in the conversation like i had one yesterday with a a, a senior uh u.s utility executive where we were talking you know there were, there were no safety significant issues that we were talking about it was about a meeting but at the end he you know he asked the question to everyone on the call is there anything that you're concerned about that you haven't talked about today right that safety culture is sort of an open and questioning attitude among everyone that works at a nuclear plant are we doing the right thing is there something we should be worried about and and so that really is you know you put NRC EPA the the nonproliferation regime and impo together and that and 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 then you know industry does you know at a plant level does their own things right i mean there there are federal standards but you know there's always the 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 competition to be in the upper the, the uppermost quintile of whatever metric it is that that you're measuring so it's it's pretty comprehensive and that that element is something i believe um that's part of the whole impo regime, right? They, they don't they do a a measuring process of some kind. A measuring process. And no one wants to go to an impo meeting and say I'm in the bottom third this year. That's right. That's right. So I think there's a lot of internal competition and and that's that can be good, right? Now, if you're if you're chasing every last millirem of occupational exposure of your plant workers to not be in the bottom quintile, you know, we can have a discussion about whether or not you know, that makes sense or, or mm-hmm. you know, a couple more millirem and walk down some equipment and so forth. But, but I think that, that overall the net effect of the system is a very, very safe and efficient nuclear fleet that operates every day providing 20% of the power in, of electric power in this country. Yeah, you just used two words that I think are key here, safe and efficient. We talked earlier about how efficient nuclear plants are. And that's one of the amazing things about nuclear power and why I'm so optimistic about the technology moving forward is because it brings both of those things uh, to to the table equally. Um, And I would argue it's because of the internal mechanisms of the industry and how they work together and the, you know, I'm a free market, free enterprise guy, and I often get into these conversations like, can nuclear work in a free free enterprise? And my answer is always – I believe that it can, and we see when nuclear's subject to free enterprise, it actually does really well. Um, now, of course, people say, well, we don't exist in free energy markets, and I agree with that, but that doesn't mean that that can't be my goal, mm-hmm. and that within that goal, I believe nuclear can be very successful, and the post-three-mile island trajectory of nuclear is such a great example where you have these massive increases in safety, these massive increases in economics, the economics of nuclear energy, like they, it can do it. And it's because of the, I think it's because of how the industry evolved from a internally regulated, not just an internal, but the way it regulates itself internally. I would argue sometimes despite, not exclusively despite, but sometimes despite regulation at the federal level. Right. So. Yeah. Look, I think you, you, you know, Nuclear is always going to be regulated to some degree, and that's a good thing, um, because there has to be somebody looking over everybody, you know, looking over people's shoulder to make I sure. I even agree with there's that. There's a public interest in that. <laughs> 
but if you if you you know but safety you know compliance doesn't equal safety right right you need more and and in nuclear what you have is this very vibrant safety culture that that you know sometimes even to the detriment of themselves when you know they they you know they achieve excess safety margins but but they they want to operate it safely they understand what the public expects and I think that it is, it, you know, if you look at the if if you look at the nuclear industry and how it does safety on a day to day basis, it 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 sort of fits the mold that you just talked about, right? That yes, there is a government role, but what you have is a motivated, committed people whose families live near these facilities, and you know they care about safety as much, you know, as as uh, you know, selfishly as much as as regulators would from a from a policy standpoint. So. Um, it's a success story. Do you think I, I have a? I want to quick hit a couple of things mm-hmm. here because we're, we're we're coming up on the end of our hour. Um, what do you think the? Do you think that the nuclear industry's relationship and history, alongside with the nuclear navy, has led to that safety culture, and has that in, has that has one led to the other? Most definitely. Most definitely. I mean, if you if you um, if you want to look for a, a, a personified definition of excellence in the world, look at um, Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was the father of the nuclear navy, um, who is you know was a character for sure. But he most um, people worth their salt are. That's right. Um, but he he demanded the highest standards of everyone, and and because of that, you know, and, and because of the fact that that in many ways, you know, the um, the modern nuclear industry is an outgrowth of the of naval nuclear propulsion, the same way that you know modern air travel came from from you know DoD funded bombers. So, um, you know, I think if you, so I always, you know, it's funny because in my, in my, in my office, I have two pictures above my desk, which is, um, and I, I look to them for inspiration every day. The one on the left is Hyman Rickover on a ladder walking out of a reactor pressure vessel that's being built back in the 1950s. And the other one is the wolf from Pulp Fiction, because sometimes you know, the job requires intense, meticulous planning. And sometimes there's just a little bit of like, you know, <laughs> last minute cleanup you need to do to keep to keep going. So, I, you know, whenever I'm on a call, I look and say, which one do I need to seek inspiration from? <laughs> Those are two great pictures. I thought for sure one was going to be me, but. You know. Well, you're, you're kind of like the wolf, Jack. Maybe. Jack is kind of like the wolf. Maybe. Like, oh, we're we're bringing Jack onto the project. That's <laughs> yeah. all you had to That's say. That's all you had to say. All right, 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 right. Um, two things I want to bring up real quick. We can hit them as fast as you want. Um, talk about nuclear waste and safety, and then I want to talk about uh, transportation of nuclear materials and nuclear waste or whatever and right. safety because those are two issues. That people always bring up. Yeah. So so the first thing to understand in any conversation about nuclear, the, the high-level waste, you, you know, use nuclear fuel in the handling is recognize at the end of the day it is an, it is an oxide ceramic. So think of it like your coffee cup. 
So if you dropped a pellet of uranium fuel and you'd have to, you know, probably drop it from a pretty high distance, just just a hype, you know, thought experiment, it would it would crack like a coffee cup. And so if you had to clean it up, you clean it up like a cracked coffee cup. It's not a green goo. It's not a gas. It's not something that will immediately seep into the soil and contaminate an area. So, so recognize the kind of material that you're, that you're dealing with. So we've safely transported literally thousands of containers of, of, of nuclear material and nuclear fuel um, you know, in the past 30 years without a single, you know, without a single incident. Um, the, the containers themselves are, are, you know, tested by firing missiles into them, dropping them off, the, uh, off a crane onto a, you know, a sharpened steel point. Um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, if you were just to look at it and take the nuclear fuel out of it and just look at the safety systems around it, you'd probably walk away and be, uh, you know, I feel, I feel good about this. And the fact that you can put spent nuclear fuel in a dry cask storage system that has no moving parts, that uses convection to, you know, uh, um, get rid of the residual heat of the, the fuel in the canister and are basically um, – okayed by the the nuclear regulatory commission for a hundred year storage cycle you know it is and and every ounce of that material is accounted everywhere throughout the process there is no other kind of waste of any form that is subject to such great care as nuclear waste and as a result of that we've not you know again the safety record is superlative here i want to ask you a tough question so i think you we got transportation. Yeah. We got waste. Um, I'm going to ask you a tough question here. We've established that nuclear energy is safe. We know that existing reactors are very safe. We didn't talk a lot about it, but I think you would agree that future reactors are going to be safe. We're always told how safe they are. Yet we need, not we, uh, yet many in the nuclear industry, if not most, want, would say they need Price-Anderson which is a liability regime that protects the nuclear industry against certain high levels of, it doesn't protect them. It provides federal support for high levels of liability in the case of a nuclear accident. How does one resolve those two seemingly contradictory things? I'm gonna take a more practical view to this, which is, you know, in life, we run into lots of QWERTY keyboards in our life, right? Things that are organized in a way that we wouldn't do it ourselves probably aren't the most efficient for how things are run today. But because our society is built around it, that if you were to automatically take away everyone's QWERTY keyboard and give them one that just had ABC straight across the, the, the keyboard, it would, you know, it might be better in the long run, but it's it's going to create short-term harm to the industry in a way that would um, detract from our overall, you know, the overall goals of of you know supporting human flourishing in this country. So, uh, you know, I I think that that I hope and I, I I hope there will be a time when at some point in the future where. We've, we've conquered the public fear about nuclear technology, that people have a more objective understanding of what the risks are, 
there's there's you know a lower risk premium built into everything that nuclear does and maybe at that point we can assess how we manage the liability regime maybe we can get to that point i think i think you know i think 50 years in the future our 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 um our lines of travel converge jack uh, it's not our lines of travel of travel cuz i agree with you i um Look, I don't, I, I don't think we need Price Anderson. I think that you could get rid of it and the world would move on and it would be interesting to see where nuclear ends up. But on my list of things, of reforms, Price Anderson's not first on my list. And it's exactly for the reasons you said that, um, you know, we don't need to have a Price Anderson argue, uh, d- uh, discussion. But regardless of why it was put in place and though the ongoing justification is different than that, that's where we are right now, and I would rather get reforms in a lot of other places. So I agree with with your assessment 100%. The reason I asked you is because I know it's in our audience that's something that people might wonder about. So I wanted to give them cool. – I wanted us to have an opportunity to to hear our thoughts on that. And just a short a short rejoinder to say that, that you know, much like space <coughs> technology um, – there are government origins to nuclear technology, right? It, 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 it was spawned in government. The goal here is to, you know, through the process of innovation, move to a much more commercial-centric nuclear energy enterprise in the U.S. Because that's really what's going to get us the, the gains in efficiency, the scale of production that needs to be required, right? The, I mean, we need to stop building airports and start building airplanes with our nuclear reactors, right? We need, they need to be coming off of assembly lines. And that, you know, there is no better way to do that than, you know, to harness the competitive spirit of private enterprise. So I think that that if we if we, you know, culture this and take care of it, um, that we will get. To, I think we can get to that point. Very good. Um, so we do a final segment where we go over a few headlines. We're going to do that quickly. But before we do, Craig, I have. Uh, well, first, uh, Rachel and Travis, do you have any final questions on nuclear energy? Now is your chance. Well, I do have a question. I don't want to step on your toes because I, I know you want to ask about the future. Well, uh, if you want to ask about the future. I want to ask about the future. Right, you, know, you ask about the so, future. And we can still put this in the context of safety. But what I'm curious about is you have these new applications. You know, I throw out as an example the X Energy and Dow. You have an industrial application. You know, a lot of heavy industry needs process heat. So usually in the form of steam. Right. And it needs power. So this combined heat and power element, like you get that pretty easily from coal or from gas, but if you're trying to decarbonize that, then it turns into, oh, well, oof, it gets a little tricky. Uh, here's the thing. What do we need to do on the safety regulatory front to allow these new applications to flourish? So both on the industrial side, I'd like to see it in terms of, I mean, the fact that we power submarines with with this stuff, I, that's fascinating. What, why, why aren't there more applications? Because mostly what we see is these giant power plants and that's it. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, if we, could, if we could step into our time machine and go forward 10, 15 years from now, um, I, I think you're going to see um, a new generation of reactors coming online, uh, advanced technologies, uh, process heat, especially you pointed out the sort of the, the, the XE100, the X Energy plant, and, right. you know, it's, it, it's, it's 
sort of optimized for for you know both heat and electricity. Um, I think we're going to see that in a lot of you know industrial applications, whether it's plastics or or uh, other petrochemicals. Um, I think ultimately we may be seeing it for desalination, uh, large scale desalination. Obviously, we had a you know we had a great snowpack out west this year, but you know we'll see where that we'll see where that goes. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a huge market for it, and and it's you know it's 35 percent of our primary energy roughly is going to industrial processes, and to get that that cleaned up, more reliable, um, you know, less you know less um, uh, subject to volatility in commodity markets um, makes for a you know makes for a good economy. So I, I see that happening. I mean, you, you look at all the different reactors and their different applications for them, right? So um, the the TerraPower reactor, uh, the natrium reactor, is really focused on helping balance the grid and 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 being able to store and dispatch energy as you know as needed. Right, the current plants you kind of you know you turn them on, you run them at 100%. If you're not taking energy, you're you're you know you can't you can't dial them down to 50 easily, right? You can't and and so I think you'll see load fo- you know load following in most all of the new designs right now. Um, it's an exciting time. Very good. Now, Craig, don't leave yet. We're done the nuclear discussion, okay. sort of, but we're going to do a quick fire discussion where we talk about some headlines of the day. So with that, Rachel, Travis, do you have any headlines that you want to cover? I'll just mention the first one. I'll cover the good. Um, give us the good. So this poll came out and we kind of discussed it a little bit. You, you mentioned this before that, there's a change in perspective on on nuclear energy. And a poll came out that shows that uh, more Americans today are on board with nuclear. Right, Chuck? I, I don't have the percentage a at Gallup the top poll of mind. Just saw this article. 55% favor. 55% favor. You know, it's it's... It's a long battle. We're making progress, and we have to win people over one at a time. This is not something we're going to do in an you know eight figure ad buy on TV anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. It's it's happening at dinner tables. It's happening in classrooms, and uh, um, and you know our job as a professional society is to uh, uh, help engender more of those conversations. Right. We're 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 we're, we're running. I'm going to say we're running up the score, but we're we're uh, you know we're. We're looking pretty good in like the fourth or fifth inning. Now, I'm going to ask a question. I should have told you I was going to ask you this because you may not know the answer. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you know where Americans stood in support of nuclear like in the late 50s and early 60s when we had sort of these Jetsons? Right. Um, the beginning of the when space it was at- race. When it was atomic power, yeah, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So so I think that, that – um, I know Gallup has doing been doing the numbers for a while. I mean, I can I can only speculate, but I it, I have to believe that those numbers were pretty high, yeah. right? There was there was you know high trust in institutions. We were kind of the leaders in the technology. Um, it was it was sort of a, a, a you know a badge of technological honor for the U.S. at that point in time. So um, you know, and then we 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 sort of went through the you know we went through the tough years, right? Where where Trusted institutions went down, and there were, you know, there were um, obviously the Three Mile Island plant had had, you know, had an impact on things. I mean, it is probably 
it is it is the perfect example of how not to handle event related communications like like they couldn't have done any more damage to the reputation of nuclear if they tried really yeah. and, and i you know I, again i nobody was ready for it but um you know if you if you if you're in a car at 40 miles an hour and you hit a telephone pole and the airbag goes off and you come off with a few scrapes even though the car is totaled i call that a success yeah yeah um the the damage to the industry far exceeded the damage to that plant that happened. Right. Well, that's not really true. The plant did partially melt down. But you know what I mean. <laughs> but the other one ran for another 30, 40 years right, right next to it. Um, do you have anything to say on that, Travis? People like nuclear more. They should. They shouldn't. They're crazy. Well, so I usually I try to be an optimist on this show. But uh, the the thing that I have noticed that is not good, we talked about this in the last episode, Germany is shutting down. It just shut down. What was it? It had three reactors left, and they just shut it down like a week ago or something. There is still something to that I think needs to be addressed because I I think there are a lot of people, and if we pull on this thread, I think it comes down to sort of an Alex Epstein approach where people, if it's unnatural, people don't like it. So wind and solar, it has this, you know, people feel like it's very natural. So let's just run on that instead of nuclear power. I would point back to, and this gets back to like, what's the argument if it's not about decarbonization? The argument in my mind is about power density, right. which is about amazing levels of, of energy and power that can actually produce a high-powered industrial society without basically turning the entire landscape into a wind and solar farm. So that's my take on it. But I still, I, you know, I'm positive too uh, in general, but we still have these pockets of anti-nuke, you know, the the shut it down we, crowd. I, I, so I, I have to acknowledge that we do, we do. And look, I'm half German, okay. So you know, uh, I, I've I had a little, I had, you know, I remember the anti-nuclear movement in the 1970s being over there. Look, the Germans, you know, the Germans are still an affluent culture. Um, you know, they 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 have enough money to afford artisan energy and put up with the, the consequences of it, right? So this author Venkatesh Rao a few years ago wrote an article and talked about the Jeffersonian Bazaar versus the Hamiltonian infrastructure that supports. So when you go into a Whole Foods, everything feels like a farmer's market, right? And we sort of believe that that's how it is. We What we don't see, unless you're flying across the country, are you know all of the infrastructure, all of the storage, all of the refrigeration that needs to occur in order to present us with this this sort of you know artisan feel? And I think some people, if they get too detached from from industrial reality, start thinking that they can live without it. But as I think we all know, you can't. Well, and what we what we do see, what we can observe, is that there is industrial flight from Germany, right. even when they've tried to subsidize the industrial sector by charging more to sort of everyday folks, even with that, you still see, you know, large chemical industries going to China, things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a deindustrialization that goes along exactly. with the anti-nuke movement. And so I'd prefer to be on the other side of that pro-industry, pro-nuke. Let's, you know, all of the all of the energy dense sources, you know, uranium is, is you know, head and shoulders above everything yeah. else. So th that that's where I would lean, but you know, it's it's still it's it's worth acknowledging that it's still happening in some places that folks just can't wrap their minds around it. And I'll just note California, uh, Diablo Canyon slated for closure. Now it still has to go through a few regulatory wickets, but it looks like um, it's going to keep continuing to operate. So even in a place like California, where um, you have some of those same sort of mental processes that are maybe more prevalent, um, they've made the change. 
I was glad to see that. That's a good point. So we usually do three headlines. We're just going to do two today because we've talked way too long. But there's this thing that happened this week, and I just got it. We, we need to talk about. Joe Biden uh, signed an executive order that would create the White House Office of Environmental Justice. And in this executive order, he says he wants to make the whole government its purpose to advance the environmental justice agenda. Um, I will just say I find this extraordinarily troubling because, unfortunately, uh, the agenda that resides under the name environmental justice really isn't about environmental justice at all. It's very much about a left of center, if not hard left, um, governance agenda. And to me, whenever they start creating these mechanisms that justify the government operating towards that, that can be really scary. And in addition, one of the, um, one of the perverse results of this, I think, will be the exact opposite of environmental justice, whatever that is, at least as they define it, which is these sorts of policies will impact poor folks and marginalized folks far more than what um, a policy of energy abundance would. So anyway, um, anyone who wants to comment on that. Now, Rachel, you have to comment on it. What do you think of this? I mean, I wholeheartedly agree. This is one of the many arguments when it comes to the whole gas stove debate, um, because that's centered around. um, So lower income marginalized communities tend to use and have older gas operated um, appliances in, in their home. And so when it comes to banning those sorts of appliances on the grounds of you know, this this climate solution, um, it's really going to have the complete adverse effect, cost these people far more money um, in their electricity bills and even upgrading appliances when it comes to that. So that's something that I'm experiencing right now across the debate. Um, so I agree with everything you just said, Jack. That's a good place board. to be. Now I realize we're we're pretty much at the end of the episode. So I, I have a rant that we should probably, snappy, we should probably save this rant for the dark web version of the episode. But every time somebody talks about environmental justice, it just, look, I'm, I have the old school view of justice, you know, like equality under the law and things like that. What I'm seeing now instead is this environmental justice is the banner. And then you can do a bunch of stuff underneath it. Cause justice of course sounds really nice. One of the things, and, and this is a California policy. One of the things is, well, we know that higher costs impact poor folks more. So if your if your power bill goes up, that's like one of the most regressive things you can do. So instead what they're doing is a whole lot through tax policy, which is a more progressive structure. And then even directly, so I think this is a California idea, is to basically charge people for their electricity based on their income. So I'm seeing a lot of things like that where they're starting to acknowledge, so the, the environmental left in general is starting to acknowledge that they have a very regressive impact on people. Then the question is, well, is that really justice? And then do you have to layer on all this other stuff where you, you know, the, the way the costs impact you, it's, they basically have to come and bail you out because they know it's expensive and they know that that's bad. And then they, so they, so they change the way they charge people. So I don't know, that's more of a dark web rant, but that th- there's something to that. And I, I, I worry that that California angle is going to catch on. Craig, what, do you have any thoughts on it? Well, I can just speak from the from the nuclear community side, and this is just this is just 
us bragging a little bit, but if you look at nuclear versus the energy industry at large, um, the salaries are higher. Um, we have more women as a percentage of the workforce, and we have more uh, minorities as a percent of the workforce. So, um, you know, nuclear jobs are good jobs, and they support vibrant communities. And um, and if that's your objective, however you choose to pursue it, then take a look at nuclear. Craig Piercy bringing it home. Thank you, Craig. That was great. Um, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't like us, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. Travis, Rachel Craig, thank you all so much. Um, so there you go, folks. Remember to email us, Travis. You get the almost last word because I'm going to say bye. Where do they email us? The Power Hour at Heritage.org. All right. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know what our followers should be called. Thank you. See you next time.